invite you to stand in honor of the word of God. I will read for you verses 1 through 10, or excuse me, 3 through 10, uh, to consider the context. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, as Peter is writing to a group of believers scattered throughout what we know today as Turkey, it'd be Asia Minor in the Greek, uh, in the um, uh, Asia Minor in the uh, New Testament times, but hear the word of the Lord beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. Of all the things we could conceive to do, of the most noble tasks that we might ever pursue, none of the tasks are greater than the pursuit of the highest knowledge of our God. A.W. Tozer has put, perhaps put it most famously this way when he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about the character and the conduct of our God, beloved, it shapes the way that we will respond to everything around us. The greater view you have of God and his majesty, of God and his sovereignty, of God and his ability to do and accomplish what he has set out to do, it will impact the way you respond to anything that takes place, good or bad. When trials and circumstances affect our relationship, when we find ourselves pushed into situations that we might never have considered or dreamed about handling, when we're stretched sometimes beyond the point we believe we can even handle that we're about to break, I submit to you that it is the attributes and actions of God that will bring to you either a calming influence and rest as you realize you are under his providence, believing that he does in fact work all things together for the good of those who love him, 
who are called according to his purposes, or if you have an inadequate view of God, it will cause you to do something that Proverbs 3 warns you not to do, and that is you will begin to lean on your own understanding. You will find yourself increasingly overwhelmed, and you will eventually crumble. Well, running parallel to this idea of having the highest view of God possible, we would say is the pursuit of a high view of Scripture. So there are two things I might have you to remember. Remember to pursue a high view of God, and how do we do that? We need to have a high view of Scripture. Why? Because Scripture is God's own self-disclosure of what? His attributes and his actions, of his character and of his conduct. The more one reads the pages of Scripture and sees how God has interacted with humanity, the more we read scripture and see how God has interacted with various men and women throughout history provides for us a framework by which we can then maintain our own proper view of God. I share all of this because as we come to 2 Peter 3 verses 8 through 10, we find Peter moving from his arguments against false teachers teachers who were teaching that Christ was not coming back, there's no reason to believe that he's returning, to now turning his attention to believers. And he wants them to comprehend what? The very character and the very conduct of God with regard to this truth that Jesus Christ is coming back. Peter's concern for his readers is that they, if they have been exposed to the rhetoric and to the arguments of false teachers, they've heard the naysayers, they have heard the skeptics, that when we are, are subject to that long enough, believers may begin to embrace some bad thinking about what? Or really about who? The character and conduct of God. So he sets out to correct this. And beloved, I say to you, the same is true for us today. The more we are exposed to false teachings, to the naysayers and to the skeptics, as I submit to you is a true and present danger for us in our culture of social media and the 24-7 news cycle, we are constantly exposed to falsehoods. And what can happen is we begin to lose our sense of anticipation that we are to have concerning the return of Christ. The more that we focus on what Christ has promised, the more diligent we will be to make sure that, one, we are ready, and, two, that we are proclaiming the truth that will bring others to the saving knowledge of Christ. We need to be careful we do not lose the sense of the pursuit of holiness that we ought to have when we consider that Christ is going to return. We need to be careful not to lose the sense of responsibility of faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We need to be careful to lose our awareness of the character and conduct of God. And so we find Peter turning his attention in these verses, not wanting anyone who claims to know Christ to be willfully ignorant of the character and conduct of God. Whereas in verses 3 through 7, and we should have the outline up there, 3 through 7, Peter had addressed the problem of those who contradict the reality of the return of Christ. He now wants to make sure that none 
of that influence, none of this false teaching is now infiltrated into the thinking of believers. And how do you do that? You bring people back to the character and the conduct of God. Give them a high view of God according to what Scripture teaches. And that's what we are looking at. My notes are a little bit out of order, which is a very strange thing for me, so I'm not sure where we're looking at here. So, all right, well, uh, let me, <laughs> oh, okay, I see. I apologize for that. Um, let, me, let me bring you quickly to the structure here of Peter's argument. Notice that in verse 8, if you look at the text, we're just going to run through this very quickly, and then we'll begin our, our look at the verses more specifically. In verse 8, he begins his argument now by addressing the issue of the promise of God. What is the promise that, that is being spoken of here? It is the return of Christ. Specifically, now he will address with reference to God's relationship to time. Because there's been a delay in the return of Christ. When Peter's writing this, we're some 30 some odd years since Christ has gone up into heaven. 30 years is a long time before somebody who said they're coming back, they haven't come back. I mean, if you and I are waiting for 30 years for somebody to come back, we'd say, I don't know if he's coming back. So he's going to address this issue. Why this long delay? How is God what is his relationship to time? In verse 9, we find Peter addressing the issue of the patience of God, addressing one of these attributes of God, and he gives it as the explanation, as the reason for the delay in Christ's return, and we're going to see that. And then in verse 10, Peter addresses the matter of the punishment of God, that which will take place when Christ returns, bringing, of course, punishment upon the unbelieving and the ungodly. With verse 10, I'd also have you notice, and we'll look at this more in detail in a moment, that in this context, in verse 10, verse 10 is not very exciting uh, if you are an unbeliever. I mean, even with regard to being a believer, it's not speaking to what's happening to believers. It's speaking about the punishment that is going to come, what happens to those who do not believe. It is not speaking about salvation. It is speaking about what happens rather to those who refuse to believe on Christ. And the argument will be this, that just as there were those in the days of Noah who rejected the word and the will of God, who mocked Noah for doing what he did, just as God then utterly destroyed that world with water, verse 10 tells us in the same way there's a day that is coming when those who reject the word and the will of God and mock God's messengers uh, who proclaim the truth that Jesus is returning, this present world will also be destroyed, only this time it will not be with water, it will be with fire. So the main thrust of 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10, is to know the promise, to know the patience, and to know the punishment of God, as these actions and these attributes of God will impact our thinking about who God is and what he is like, and then in turn, that should have an impact upon the way in which you and I live our lives, which we'll see next week, beginning in verse 11. So let's turn our attention to these verses. We're looking at the 
Grand point number two, the certainty of Christ's return, and we begin with the promise of God. Let me read verses 8 and the first part of verse 9 again. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, speaking to believers, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise. So Peter begins these remarks, if you'll notice, by first addressing the crowd that he's speaking to, and he addresses them as who, the term that I like to use from this pulpit, beloved. This is how Peter began the chapter. If you look back in in verse 1, he says, this now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you. This is a, a term that he loves for Peter to be beloved is the same as what he addressed in chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to look there. The beloved are those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved are saved. Beloved are redeemed. Beloved have been purchased by Christ. The beloved know Jesus and are known by Jesus. Peter is speaking to believers, not unbelievers, as he had in verses 3 through 7. And I believe this distinction is important because now I want you to note that Peter does something interesting. He starts verse 8 quite similar as he did verse 5. Notice up in verse 5 that he had spoken of false teachers, those who had denied the word of God, saying that the earth has not experienced any changes or divine events Since creation, he says there in verse 5, the fact that God has intervened, that God has done something, what? Escapes their notice. Look at that. He says that the mockers have that word escapes, or that phrase escapes their notice, means they've deliberately chosen to forget or ignore the truth. It speaks of those who are willfully, intentionally ignorant of the reality that God created this world by his word, that he has destroyed this sinful world by his word. Now look at verse 8. Peter is now speaking about believers, the beloved, and he says what? But do not let this one fact, same verb, escape your notice. It is the same language that he had used in verse 5. For Peter, it is not enough to simply refute false teaching. It is not simply enough to point out the mockers. He wants to challenge believers to make sure that they do not willfully neglect the truth, that they do not intentionally set it aside, that they understand the character and nature of God in relationship to the return of Christ. In essence, Peter is calling believers to never forget who God is and how God operates. He is the God of promise, we are about to recall. He is the God of patience, we're about to see. And he is the God who punishes those who refuse to receive Christ. This verb is present tense. It is a command so as to say, do not let this one fact escape and never ever at any time let it escape your notice. Don't ever give an opportunity for you to say, oh, I forgot this particular truth. Always bear in mind the character and conduct of your God 
in relation to, in the context of our, our text here, of his promises, his patience, and his punishment. The Greek text literally reads this way. It says, this one thing, let it not escape you, beloved. He says, this one thing, that's the most important thing. What thing is that, Peter? That one thing is, never forget the character and conduct of God. It is here that Peter now introduces us to the character of God as it relates to time. The mockers were declaring that God had not intervened since the beginning of creation, and therefore we would be fools to consider that God would now intervene once again, that somehow this Jesus, this Christ, the God-man, would return, especially that he would return to deal out justice and retribution on those who do not believe. They were teaching that, Again, are you ready for this? Hey, Christians, it's been, this is Peter, okay? It's been 30 years, Peter's time. It's been 30 years. That's a long time to wait for somebody. Now, the argument of these false teachers seemed like they could stand on it a little bit better even today, right? You foolish Christians. They were foolish for waiting 30 years for Christ to return. Now it's been 2,000 years, and you're still sitting in some soft chair every Sunday waiting for this man to return. This is the argument that has been presented to these particular believers. And so they're saying, how do you explain this delay? How can you believe that he is ever coming back? And so here we are. We are 2,000 years later. What are we to do? Well, Peter has already addressed the scoffers in verses 3 through 7, but now he offers a reminder for us. And what is he saying? What am I driving home? Don't forget the character of your God. And he offers them an explanation in part for the delay here. Notice what he says. That with the Lord... Now, this is in the context of who God is. So it's with the Lord. It's everything that makes God, God. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. There had been those in Peter's day who had claimed that the promised return of Christ had failed. Obviously, he's not returning. It's been so long was the argument. But their argument is based upon their own human perception of what? Time. They're basing it upon their timetable, what they think is now, what they think should be taking place. They're not considering God's use of time whatsoever. In this verse, Peter's actually echoing the words of Moses, who in Psalm 90 verse 4 said this, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. God's perspective on time, beloved, differs greatly from the human perspective. Our text does not say that one day is a thousand years and that a thousand years are one day. We're not being offered some kind of mathematical formula in order to insert long periods of time into the biblical text. That's not what's taking place. The point is that God is not confined to human timetables. We want things 
when we want them. Man, we are like, we instantly, right? We, if we send a text message and it doesn't like immediately say that it's sent, and if we don't see the other person say that it's been delivered and read, we're like, what's going on? We want everything now. We hate to wait. We don't understand why some things take so long to figure out. We can get frustrated with bureaucracy in, in politics. We can get frustrated with how long it takes to, to get something built or, or to get something repaired. And with the return of Christ, we can certainly ask the question, why such a long delay? Now, I have to say it, I'm going to say it again, but when we ask why such a long delay, can I just stop for just a moment and say, aren't you glad that God has delayed it? Because if it were just a few decades earlier, none of us would be part of it. So there's a little bit of a cause of rejoicing right there. And so there's a call here to remember that God's use of time is both extensive and intensive. It's extensive in that we, we, we think uh, there's so much that we as humans believe God ought to do in a, any given day. You should just you'd be able to do this, God, right now in this particular moment. But yet he chooses to take a thousand years to do it. Or conversely, God's use of time is also intensive in that he might do in a day what we could only imagine would take a long period of time. So, for example, let me just give you an example. Consider the atoning work of Christ on the cross. It was such of an intensive character that what, consider what was accomplished in a few hours on the cross that has forever impacted all time and eternity. So God did in a day that which would affect thousands of years. What is the point? We must remember that God is not limited to our time schedules in order to fulfill his purposes. God is not set to our timetables in order to fill, fulfill his promises. God is guided by his own wisdom, by his own counsel, acting whenever he has determined is best. And we ought to rejoice and know this truth about our God, that whatever God has brought about in whatever timing he does it, it is the best timing ever. What seems to us to be a long time, like a thousand years, is in God's sight, but like one day. But why? Why is Peter addressing the character of God in this conduct? While it may seem that Christ's return has been so long delayed and beyond comprehension of the false teachers, and sometimes even beyond our own comprehension, as, I mean, once we're saved, how many of us have ever said, hey, let's just, let's, why can't we just go? We're, I'm, I, I've got my ticket, I'm ready, right? Why the delay? And so we can even say it. But we need to realize that from God's perspective, you realize this, God's outside of time. You realize that from God's perspective, the return of Christ is imminent. It is. He's ready to have it happen. Imminent simply meaning it can happen at any moment. As finite human beings, we cannot confine the infinite God to our time schedules. The reality, the certainty is that the Lord Christ will return, and I can tell you when he's going to return. 
Ready for this? You're going to throw me out of the pulpit. False teacher. I'll tell you when Christ will return. He will return at the exact precise moment that God the Father has determined from all eternity that he will come back. I just answered the question. And also answer the question as to why uh, God has chosen me. Because it was according to his good intention, according to the his kind intention according to the praise and glory of his will. So you can deal with that one too, but um, it doesn't always satisfy that. He will return, beloved, at the exact moment God has determined. Therefore, those who argue that Christ, this is the argument, we argue that Christ will not return because he hasn't returned yet. That's a great argument. We believe that Christ will not return because, well, he has not returned yet. But all they do by saying that is demonstrate themselves to be fools in the biblical sense, simple-minded, ignorant people of the character and the conduct and the promises of God. What a glorious truth it is to bear in mind this morning, particularly when things are difficult, and I know we all face various difficulties. When we find ourselves in those circumstances where waiting seems to be arduous and painful, in those moments when we, we want our resolve in that moment, and yet we cannot find it, those moments when, and I know many of us have had those, when we spend the night crying out to God for some kind of, of answer, and yet it seems like, our cries might fall on deaf ears. So we come back to this truth. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise. He has promised to care for you. Do you not find that in the scripture? He has promised to love you with a, an everlasting love. He has promised to provide for you. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Everything necessary for life and godliness, Peter has said, has been granted to you. It is found in your relationship to Christ. And so the same God who has provided for his own such precious and magnificent promises has also promised that his son, Jesus Christ, will return. Oh, I wish on certain days that it were on that day. But God in his time and in his wisdom has said, Ed, you're still here. You guys, you're still here. God is still with us. We still have work to do. We still have people to minister to. We still have the gospel to proclaim. We still have people who we must show the love and the character and the wonder of Christ. We may not always like God's timing, but a careful reading of scripture always reveals that God's timing is best. And so do not constrain God to your timetable. But there's one more thing that is re, uh, one more thing that uh, we would suggest here, and that is that First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter four verse two says there's one thing that's required of a steward that he be found 
faithful. There's one thing that is required of those to whom have been given something to manage, and that is that you are faithful with it through the entirety of the time it has been granted to you. You have been entrusted with what, beloved? The gospel. It has been entrusted to you, and now you take this time in which God, according to his timetable, has given you to live in this moment, and you don't live it for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf. And you say, God, help me live every moment as if it's my last moment to give you glory, to bring you praise. That's how we ought to live. That by the grace of God, we would prove to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the what? In the work of the Lord. Remembering what? That our labor, that our toil, everything that we do, all the time you invest in a church, all the time you invest in other individuals, all the time you invest in your children, the truths and the precepts of the gospel, that when you do that, it will not be in vain because it's been invested in the Lord and in his time. And uh, the last time I understood uh, uh, the, the beauty of compound interest, I'm going to get all mathematical on you, okay? The longer that you keep money in earning interest, the bigger the return. The longer God gives us to impart the truths of the gospel to one another, the greater the return we have to give to God. The certainty of the return of Christ is bound up in God's promise, a promise that is never nullified by the passing of time. I don't care if it's another 3,000 years before Christ returns. Jesus said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, it doesn't matter what I believe, really. Jesus said it. That settles it. He is returning. And until he comes, we must be busy about his business. We have the promise of God. But in addition to the promise of God, notice that the certainty of Christ's return is also bound up in the patience of God. Verse 9, the patience of God. Again, we read in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Piggybacking on verse 8 what Peter had just spoken, Peter does not want believers to entertain the false teaching that somehow God is slow. Now, this is an interesting translation, this, this delay in the anticipation of the return of Christ, that, that God is too slow to actually bring about the promise. Peter's choice of words are interesting. Again, the, the word slow. The word slow has been translated, can be translated, are you ready for this, as slack. In other words, according to the false teaching, a, teach, a teaching that some believers may have been entertaining, and so Peter's now addressing, is that because so much time has passed, God has proven himself to be a slacker. Now, how many of you would like to attribute to God this description? God, our God is an awesome God. Our God is a slacker. That's what the false teachers were communicating, that God is a slacker with regard to the keeping of this promise. 
The verb translated slow here in the text means to delay, to be slow, or to loiter. And it implies being late or tardy in relationship to an appointed time. So who's making the timetable? The false teachers. Jesus should have already returned. Uh, he's late. He's late according to whose time? Not even believer's timetable. Unbeliever's timetable. The verb implies one of two things, either indifference to the keeping of the time, indifference as if I don't care if I'm on time or not. You've known people like that? I meet you there at 10 o'clock. Oh, I might get there at 10.59. It's still 10 o'clock, you know, but okay. That's not our God. It either implies indifference to the keeping of that prescribed timetable as if to suggest God doesn't care about time, or it, it indicates an inability to perform according to the prescribed time, that God can't do it, that somehow God has failed in keeping this because he can't. You know, I, I always like, I promise I'll be there at 10 o'clock. Well, what if my car breaks down? I, I, I can't guarantee that promise. There are so many things that could happen that might prohibit me from actually accomplishing this goal. Not so with our God. I believe there's a sense of frustration with Peter that neither indifference nor inability should ever be an attribute ascribed to the character of our God because whatever God does is never determined, as we just noted, by human standards. I'm here to tell you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a preacher of the word of God, that the concept, this concept, I'm going to give you another word, because this is what they're arguing, that our God is a procrastinator. He'll get around to it if he can, when he can. May we never entertain such a charge against our God. God may seem to be slow only with reference to our standard, but God is never late. God may choose from our perspective to wait, but he is never late. So if God is not procrastinating, it begs a question. Why has he taken so long to return. Why is there this great gap of time between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ? Why would he make us wait so far for 2,000 years? And Peter answers the question, and you see it right before your eyes. But, he says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Peter gives us a purpose. He tells us precisely there is an intentionality to the delay of the return of Christ. And what is this delay? It is for salvation. It is salvific. The reason why Christ has not yet returned is because, you're ready, God is patient with sinners. Because if he wasn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Any delay is not to be used as a cause to doubt 
the character and the ability of our God. The delay is to be used, as Peter's now reminding us, as a manifestation of the very attributes of a benevolent God who is giving us the time so that we will come to believe. The word patient actually speaks of long-suffering. It is a verb, or a word that means, it speaks of putting up with something for a long time. And in context, it means God putting up with those things that actually deserve his wrath. Because we're about to see that in verse 10. So, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All deserve death, for the wages of sin is death, destruction, separation from God. All deserve such punishment, but God is exercising long suffering. He's tolerating generation after generation of sinners to bring to himself those who will call upon the name of his son, Jesus Christ, to be Lord and Savior. God is not holding back or abstaining from the fulfillment of this promise of the return of Christ. Rather, the delay is for this benevolent purpose that you will believe, that you will repent, that you will come to know Christ Jesus as Lord. The verb patient is in in the present tense, and it speaks then of God as exercising and always exercising in this moment self-restraint in the face of provocation so that he does not hastily retaliate, he does not promptly punish, but rather chooses to show mercy toward the guilty. We are living, we are, we are here today in this moment because of the long-suffering of God. You are worshiping Christ today because God has been patient with you. You are a testimony of the patience of God because if he had decided to end all of this any moment earlier than the moment you came to know Christ, guess what? You would be eternally lost. I'd have you note with me that first Peter, that in first Peter chapter three, verse 20, we find God acting in the same exact way as what we see here. Again, it's in the context of the flood. So that was the first demonstration of God's punishing sinners. There's going to be another iteration of God punishing sinners. In this interim, we have this time of God's showing patience. But in chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, we read this, uh, who the, the unbelieving were once disobedient when the patience of God, same word, the patience of God kept waiting, waiting, and waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. What was he waiting for? God could have, what do we say? He took 150 years to build an ark, right? How quickly could God have prepared an ark for Noah? I'm going to destroy the earth. There's a boat, get in it. And that would have been I'm, nothing wrong with that. Why did God prescribe to Noah 
to painstakingly build an ark for 150 some odd years, it was so that the patience of God would be demonstrated as Noah, a preacher of righteousness, proclaims, you better believe. But in the end, how many ended up on that boat? Just eight. The patience of God kept waiting. What do we find in our text? In the same way in these days, in this present world, God is exercising patience toward the disobedient. Now in verse 9 of our text, Peter identifies this patience, this patience as being directed towards, notice what it says, it's toward you. It's toward the believers, toward the beloved. He's reminding his readers that they are those who have now experienced the reality of God's loving patience. You and I are here today worshiping the one true God, celebrating the glorious work and person of our Lord Jesus Christ because God is presently exercising self-restraint, self-restraint concerning, ready, the wrath that you and I deserve. This you here stands in contrast to verse 7. He had spoken in verse 7 of the destruction of the ungodly men, but now he's demonstrating and has demonstrated his patience towards you, the beloved. The you are those who have experienced the Lord's patience and are therefore the same ones who now have experienced repentance. When we read that God is not wishing for, notice it says, any to perish. The word perish means to be destroyed, to be lost, but for all to come to repentance. We are to understand in this context, as he is speaking of the elect, God will not lose one of his own. All of them will come. They will all repent. They are those who have experienced this patience of God. These are those who are the beloved of God, and they stand in complete contrast, if you put it in context, to those who will experience the destruction of ungodly men there in verse 7. These who are the the repentant ones, these who are the, the ones who have seen the patience of God, these are the ones who are all the more diligent to make certain of God's choosing and calling of them. These are those who possess the attributes that we saw in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, of moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These are those, all the way back to the very first verse of this letter, are those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is this verse teaching us? God is busy. He's busy bringing to himself all those he has chosen, and not one of them will perish. Not one will be lost, but all will come to repentance. All of these will see themselves as sinners in need of a Savior and of Jesus being that Savior. Now, for anyone who is here and might wonder, you might wonder in complete sincerity, Or you may be wondering with complete cynicism, but the question's the same. I hear what you're saying, Pastor. How can I know, though, if I'm one for whom this promise and patience of God unto eternal life is meant for? How can I know? Maybe I'm not one of these that God has set aside for himself. 
I'm here to tell you that the call to you today, the offer is real. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But what if I'm not? Respond to the call. Choose to respond to the call and be one of the any who will not perish. Disregard the call and you are facing the destruction of ungodly men. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You must believe he is returning and know that he is not slow about his promise. That this delay in part is for you in this very moment. It is for you on this very day. It is for you to see who Jesus is. It is for you to believe what he has accomplished on the cross. And so we read those very familiar words and listen to them as you, as you think of uh, our, our text in verse 9 there. And you can see this verse up there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to what? Perish. If you believe, you will not perish. That's the promise of God. And you've been given the patience of God in this moment so you can believe. And if you are here and you say, I already believe, you rejoice that God has demonstrated his patience and has kept and will keep this promise for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, those are the ones that will not perish. Not any of them will perish, but they will have what? Eternal life. God's elect will not perish. They will not be destroyed. They will receive eternal life. In this moment, we find the patience of God as he is presently in the business of calling people to eternal life in Christ. But God is not only the God of patience towards sinners. He is equally the God of punishment. He is the God of wrath against all who refuse to believe on Christ. And that leads to our final point, the punishment of God. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. I'll say it again in just a moment. This is a bad day. I don't know if we look back in, in history and we're about to celebrate 22 years of nine, since 9-11 we can go back and, of course, think of uh, December 7th, 1941. It was a bad day. Nothing like this bad day in human history. Peter has countered the arguments of the mockers, and he's reminded now believers of the promises and patience of God, and this sets the stage for Peter now to make this most bold and confident assertion. He says in beginning of verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. All who believe, all who have repented, God's desire to bring them all, not one of those will perish, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
There's no ambiguity. There's no hedging it with soft language. There's no lack of clarity. The Lord is coming. It does not matter what the false teachers have said. It does not matter what our secular scientists say. It does not matter what we hear via social media. Thus saith the Lord, the Lord will come. And of this, believers must be and can be absolutely certain. Peter begins with this phrase, the day of the Lord. That's the, using, the use of an Old Testament term that speaks not of a single day, but rather of an extended period of time in which God directly, what is he going to do? He directly intervenes into history. What was the charge of the false teachers? Everything's been the same. God hasn't intervened. <laughs> the day of the Lord, this concept, God will intervene decisively into history, and the day of the Lord's purpose is that of judgment and of punishment. It is the same day of the Lord that the Apostle Paul refers to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where Paul wrote, For you yourselves, believers, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come. How does he say it? Very similar, just like a thief in the night, while they, unbelievers, are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Destruction upon ungodly men is what Peter had said. Destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. The day of the Lord, then, is a series of events of the unfolding of God's end-time program following what? The rapture of the church. If we go just a few verses before 1 Thessalonians 5, we see that the church is taken up. We, uh, I find it amazing, though, the detail that both Peter and Paul give believers concerning this time. Believers will not be there. So why do we need to know that this time is coming and it's coming like a thief. I mean, if I'm not going to be there, why do I need to know this? What is the idea of, of course, coming like a thief? Well, Peter, or Paul kind of gives us the clue. The idea is that they come in, it comes in quickly, comes in unexpectedly. Such teachings serve, though, to call the unbelieving to repentance. You better get your life in order with God. It informs them of what they have to look forward to if they continue in their unbelief. But I would also say, why do we have it? Because it serves as a cause of rejoicing for those who have believed, who know that apart from the suffering of Christ in our place, we realize that our future would be the suffering of that kind of wrath. Not only does Peter and Paul say it comes unexpectedly for the unprepared, but it is also then a time in which Peter describes it, the, the language here, the heavens will pass away with a roar. When's the last time you went outside and looked at the night sky? Uh, and those stars and everything is so far out there. And, and it's like he's saying, you're going to look up and it's all going to disappear. And I would think that if we saw the, the heavens disappear, well, it's so far out there, I would never even hear it. Peter says, no, you will hear it. It will be so overwhelmingly devastating 
you will hear it. It will come with a roar. We would be hard-pressed to paint a more devastating picture to befall humanity. Jesus taught this in Matthew 24, verse 35. He told his disciples that the heavens and earth will pass away. And both in that passage and here in 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens speak of the physical universe, all that we know to be out there, and it's suggesting here that in an instant it will disintegrate. In a moment it will be vaporized. I cannot comprehend the power necessary to be able to eradicate the entirety of the heavens in just this moment. Why does Peter describe it this way? Because just as there will be, there is no naturalistic explanation for the origin of the heavens and the earth that would ever satisfy. And just as it was all called into existence instantaneously with the word of God, likewise we are told the present heavens and the earth will disappear without a naturalistic cause. Everyone will know that was The sun will not burn out and blow up slowly after billions and billions of years. In, a, in, in the season called the day of the Lord, it will simply vanish. It will not go quietly. It goes with a roar. On this day of doom and destruction, the sound of molecules and of atoms being ripped apart will create such a deafening sound unlike anything ever heard by human ears. The end of verse 10, if you'll notice, is really simply an expansion of what Peter began back in verse 7. Notice verse 7 that he said, The present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. And now, he says, that day of judgment, when the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is God's punishment on the ungodly. This is God's punishment upon the mockers, upon those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, upon those who, let's put it very bluntly, do not receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In that day, the power of God will consume everything in the material realm, the entirety of the earth, all and every civilization, every economy, every resource, it will spread and consume the entirety of the universe. And as I said before, this, my friends, represents the worst day for humanity. But do not forget the point that Peter is making, particularly back in verses 8 and 9, of the certainty of the return of Christ. God's timing on this matter is not our own. God's timing with anything he does is not based upon what we think and what we want, but on God's holy timing. And we are to remember that God delays this promise not because of indifference and not because of inability on his part, but it is a massive demonstration of his long-suffering, of his giving time for those he is calling to himself to believe and those that he calls to himself, as we have already noted from John 3.16, shall not perish but have eternal life. They will not be destroyed 
But those who refuse to believe rest assured that their mocking and their cynicism and their scorn and their skepticism is ultimately short-lived for Christ will return. The day of the Lord will come and then it will be too late. We know that after Christ returns, this present universe as we know it will cease to exist. We know from scripture that it will be replaced according to Revelation 22 verse 5 with an entirely what? New heaven and new earth. One in where in which the righteous will live with God forever in righteousness. The unrighteous, according to Revelation 20, verses 10 through 15, will live with the eternal consequences of their sin, enduring the eternal wrath of God. The long-suffering of God will pass, and the wrath of God will come. Beloved, I do not, what your, do not know what your week has been like. I do not know what your month or year has been like. I know that we all suffer through the ebbs and flows of difficulties in this life. I know that we all have to deal with various heartaches and headaches and losses. We all go through time when we feel like we are isolated and separated. But for the believer who understands the timing of God, those are but short times. We are to live in light of the return of Christ. We are to understand the encouragement and bliss that comes from knowing that Christ, when he returns, first takes his church to be with him forever in his presence and in his bliss. And then we know that after that, he ushers in this time of judgment upon the earth that is unlike any heartache, any headache that anyone has ever known. As believers, we must learn to live in eager expectation of the return of Christ, seeking to live our lives in such a manner of holiness that when he comes, as John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, we will not shrink away when he appears. But I also say to you that we must be diligent to give a fervent and earnest plea to unbelievers to be reconciled to God so that they can have their sins forgiven, so that they can avoid the wrath to come. And through all of this, let us never forget that this is Peter's goal. We must believe the certainty of the return of Christ, and he will come right on schedule. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the challenge of these particular words. We thank you for your promises that time does not nullify them. We thank you for your patience, presently giving great patience so that we might believe. And I thank you on behalf of myself and for all who have been redeemed for your showing great patience towards us. But we know the punishment will come upon those who have not bowed the knee to those who do not believe. And so, Father, I pray today that there may not be found in anyone here a sinful, unbelieving heart. I pray that you would open the eyes of each heart here to know the reality that we are sinners and we need a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior. So we pray, Lord, that you will do your work in each of our hearts, that you will cause us to live in light of the return of Christ, that we be a prepared people, and that all that we do from this moment until the return of Christ will be that which brings you praise and glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name.